Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us over here in Agape Hall. It feels a little better. I can see your faces in the dark sanctuary. I hardly can. And plus, we can have coffee in here, or at least have a coffee with clean consciences, right? <laughs> Not trying to hide it from our neighbor. Let's. Um, we're going to get into Proverbs chapter seven, and we're drawing to a close on this section of Proverbs, which has largely been dominated by the motif of a father speaking to his son, or at times sons, plural, guiding his son on the proper path, the proper way. But as we've progressed through the chapters, that's manifested all the more clearly in this choice between two women, one being wisdom and the other being folly, one being righteous and the other being an adulteress. So we see those themes brought to a head and in some respects brought to a conclusion here in uh, chapter 7. Before we get into it, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, then, picking up at chapter 7, Verse 1, we can reflect very briefly on what we covered in depth last week. The chapter 6, verse 20 through 35 is the ninth address to a son. We saw and meditated on the themes again of a spiritual fidelity and staying away from the spiritual adulteress or the prostitute. Obviously, all of this can be read very concretely, like level number 1, um, prostitution is bad, adultery is bad. But level two, and I think we're going to see that deepened, is that adultery is an image for idolatry and an image for turning away from Christ. So with that in mind then, chapter 7, verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. That would be a good place to just point out a little of the poetry going on. Yours, you have a small sort of <coughs> parallel or chiastic structure here. My son, keep my words. And then um, this is all very common, this keeping, guarding, treasuring, following. I, again, this is so emphasized by the Holy Spirit because it's... It's this word, this teaching, this commandment that the devil wants to snatch away with his lies and with his deceits. You know, and behind the, behind the two paths, behind the two women, um, behind all other sort of poetic devices employed by Solomon, employed by the Holy Spirit through Solomon, are the realities of Christ and the devil. And this binary reality of the world where it's one or the other. And it's quite an illusion to think that there's some sort of neutral ground. And I think 
we ought to sometimes be critical of the way we use the language of secular. Oh, that's a secular thing, or the secularization, or that's a secular space. or Because very frequently what we mean by that is neutral. It's neither Christian nor demonic. But there's really no such thing. That's a categorical error to make, because there is Christian, or there is demonic. That's it. We can talk about a certain neutrality of objects within the world that can be used for good or evil, but in terms of people, in terms of ethos, in terms of moral direction, there's only two. It greatly simplifies everything, especially in this era of relative, moral relativism and this era of, well, everyone has their own truth. Okay, but that doesn't change the fact that there is one truth, he who is the truth, Jesus Christ, and everything opposed to that truth. Okay, so that's why then we're instructed over and over to guard, to keep, to treasure, etc. Um, here at the second half of verse 1, you see then the parallel in the first half of verse 2. That's what I mean by the chiastic structure. We've covered that before in here. Treasure up my commandments with you, and then verse 2, keep my commandments and live. So again, you know, we don't want to read this through a 16th century lens as if this is a statement having to do with justification. You know, you have to obey the commandments in order to have eternal life. That's not the point at all. That would be a complete mistranslation. The point here, quite obviously, is that in keeping the commandments, you're pursuing the way of life. Thus you live. To break away from the commandments, is to pursue the way of death, the path of death. Okay. Now, when we say commandments here, we don't need to narrow it to the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments, but it's also all the commandments, including those things that we would think of less as law and more as gospel. But you do see this parallelism, then, between the end of one and the beginning of two, with the repetition of commandments, and then you see just this beautiful poetic derivation at the latter half of verse 2. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. More literally as the pupil of your eye. And it's my understanding that that's where, where the origin of the phrase, the apple of your eye, comes from. It's as if you have an apple. So what would be stated here then is like keep it as the center of your eye, the center of your focus. Not, your, not in your peripheral vision, but where your attention is most acutely drawn to. So, I don't know, what does apple of the eye mean in English? Like, just kind of more generally, like your treasured possession or your favorite thing or something like that. Isn't that how we use that phrase? Um, so, a little, a little different. I mean, that still works here, but a little different. Keep my teachings as the pupil of your eye, as the absolute center of your focus. All right, and then woven in here, we have, um, again, more physical language, which we've seen done more thoroughly earlier in Solomon's Proverbs. But do note here how two transitions into three with the apple of your eye, and then three is bind them on your fingers. Okay, Almost as rings is the imagery. Write them on the tab, uh, tablet of your heart. <clears throat> and again, whenever you see the tablet of your heart, you want to realize that there's a sort of play going on because 
Old Testament way of thinking, the commandments of God are written on what tablets? Stone tablets, and they're external to you, they're outside of you. You desire to take that which is written on the stone and have it written on the flesh. So not the commandments written on the stone tablet, but have those commandments written on the tablet of your heart. So I fingers heart, acknowledging the full physicality of our beings. Okay, at verse 4, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight, so wisdom and insight here, parallel phrases, call insight your intimate friend or maybe more literally your nearest kin. Sometimes we use the phrase bosom buddy. So near to you, close to you, intimately connected with you. And I, there is an anthropomorphism here with wisdom, you know, again, taking on the form of the feminine, to be sure. Um, but even still, there's this idea that wisdom is a living thing. Again, sort of poetic veil removed, that wisdom is Christ. And so we want to relate to wisdom as opposed to think of it as mere content to be downloaded into the brain and regurgitated, there's a relationship there with wisdom, with Christ, ultimately. Debating whether or not to go off on a tangent here. Maybe a quick one, maybe a quick one. While I can still do it, the older I get, Tangents become impossible to do quickly. Okay, so in the early church, this language is picked up. And for much of Christendom, this language is picked up, even for how we perceive, uh, how the different, how the two sexes perceive each other. So um, all female Christians are my sisters in Christ, and all male Christians are my brothers in Christ. Now, I, I think that this can, um, and I understand this statement's going to be a little controversial, whatever. I'm probably not even going to bother defending it. Just let it marinate. I think many of our issues would be better addressed and better solved, particularly when we look at young people who are in the age of dating. There are those outside of the Christian faith and they don't exist. They're dead people walking. They're dead in their trespasses and sins until they're made alive. So, are, are, they, are they marriage material? Do you want to marry a corpse? That, then no more than you would marry a corpse would you marry someone outside of the household of God. These are dead people. Don't consider it until they're converted. Would you date a corpse? Then don't date a corpse. Okay. Um, would, you, would you have that person be converted? Sure, convert them. Have them be alive. Now you want to date them? Fine. But this is the way in which to think of it. If you're a female, a young lady, that's your brother in Christ. Until when? Well, in a sense, forever. But the only time in which that ordering changes is when you are married. 
then that person is now more than your brother in Christ. That person is also your husband. And of course, it fits vice versa. If you're a young man, stay away from dead people, stay away from the dead girls. Okay? Are there living girls? Then they are your sister in Christ. What would you do with your fleshly sister? That's what you ought to do with your spiritual sister. Until when? Until you are married. Now, that probably strikes us all as being a little draconian, a little harsh, maybe a little fundamentalistic, a little backwaters, whatever. It's where I'm just not even going to bother defending it. I'm going to just present this idea to you and let it marinate. I think you'll find that even if you were to say, well, I don't fully assent to that, it's off, you're going to have to admit that it's only off by degree. And then, in fact, there's much more wisdom in that frame and way of thinking than there is presently in the world. Okay? So, again, I did decide to introduce that tangent because I think that it will help you understand, then, how it is that wisdom here, um, say to wisdom, you are my sister, can be considered in the one hand as a sister, but then in verses to come as a bride. Okay? and as a nearest of kin or intimate friend, and then as a wife, one to whom you could be betrothed. Okay, so that's my tangent. Any immediate pushback? Any immediate thoughts? Okay, we are running a microphone, so hang on one second. We were going to set it up as a maze in here to make it harder on Chris, but we decided not to. Well, I really don't know how to state this, except that my brother-in-law really didn't let his daughters date anybody that wasn't a Christian. And I thought it was very weird, Mm -hmm. but it proves right. And the only thing I think about it, been there at one time, it's like your parents saying, don't walk too near the cliff because you're going to fall off and die. And you don't, or don't touch the hot stove or you're going to burn yourself. It's, it's yeah. almost the same thing. It's a warning. And it will happen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just that our, um, our hubris says, not to me. It wouldn't happen to me. I'm too strong. Yeah. But it yeah. does. It's a good point. And, and not to go further down the rabbit hole, but then again, maybe to go one more step down the rabbit hole. And... You know, that is, you have to, we have to ask ourselves, and, and I understand, like, we've got grandparents who can instruct grandchildren, we've got parents who can instruct children, we've got young people in the room who are going through this themselves or will soon be going through this, so, um, you know, as the shoe fits, but this whole concept of dating here in America, and there are generational differences. My, my parents talk about dating much differently than I do, and from what I gather from the internet, uh, many of the young people um, view dating in a very different way than I viewed dating, and my generation viewed dating. But this whole idea that you would date without the intention of marrying is bizarre. What are you dating for? If it's not marriage, if it's not, if the relationship isn't going to be tried, tested, and built toward holy matrimony, what is it being built toward? What's the only other conclusion? Adultery or fornication or whatever you want to say. But that's all, that's it. 
I mean, this isn't, we've made this complex, but if you think about it, just try to think about it as cleanly, as simply as you can. It makes zero sense that you would date someone and go, well, I'm going to date this person, but I don't want to marry this person. It's like saying, like, I want to, I, I want to end up on a mountaintop, but instead I'm going to march straight into the ocean. And that's about as much sense as saying, I'm going to date this person without desiring to marry them. I'm going to go in the exact opposite of where I ultimately want to go. So these are things to, uh, these are things to consider. And these are things to let marinate. And um, within the Hebrew people, they were forbidden to marry outsiders, foreigners, lest they be corrupted by, I mean, not only the line of Christ, of course, but then lest they be corrupted by the paganism. And that's the parallel upheld by St. Paul and the apostles in the New Testament, not to marry outside of the Christian faith. What does light have to do with darkness? And so then if you are going to marry inside the faith, you should see your potential husband or your potential wife, first and foremost, as your brother in Christ and as your sister in Christ. That's their identity. And then only once you are married to them does that does that take on, does that relationship you have with them take on a different form, that of uh, husband and wife? Okay? Maybe that's enough there. Oh, please. Nope, that's enough. I hear some controversy brewing in the air, so no, I'm just joking. <laughs> please, I, I just wanted to share, I grew up with what you shared, and it was really, I appreciate it so much. I had two older brothers, and 10 years older, 6 years older, and the oldest one comes over one time and says, you know, Paulette, you know, I'm starting to date. You get any guy that you know misbehaves around you, you just let me know. I'll take care of it, right? And then um, the brother, four years behind that, you know, shows one time, hey, I have a twin, so they, Paula could have been there too. But you know, anybody get fresh with you, you you sick Mark on him, he'll take care. <laughs> it was tell Mark, but it was just lovely, and and I like that. You see, my big brothers were looking out for me, and. Um, and I think that's really cool if you think of Christian boys looking at their, 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 the Christian girls in that same light, looking out for one another. So I totally appreciate what you shared. Yeah, yeah, I think that shoe fits both ways, too. Um, you know, sisters in Christ saying to their brother in Christ, what are you doing looking at that corpse? <laughs> no, that person's not made alive in Christ Jesus. It's a dead end. Yeah, Pastor, we, we've had an odd way of saying something for at least 50 years, as long as I've been around. No. Yeah, 50 years. No, then uh, that is, you know, that we don't believe in premarital sex. And the kids today, I'm not having premarital sex. I have no intention of getting married. You, you get what I mean? I mean, in other words, they mm. don't link the two at all. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not even premarital sex, it's, it's just... Not, yeah, casual sex. It's not premarital like sex. I'm not getting married. Yeah, yeah. Well, and equally startling on the other side of the coin, and you've no doubt seen some of the headlines, maybe read some of the articles to this effect, that um, things have gotten so twisted and perverted that in many cases there's not even what previous generations would have called um, you know, normal. From a Christian standpoint, it would be sinful. It would be extramarital sexual relations, so sinful, but culture would have called it normal, 
that like level of you know activity or experimentation or whatever um, that that's not happening amongst the youngest uh, amongst the youngest generation and those who uh, that that and it's not out of it's not out of piety it's out of complete dysfunction and a complete destruction of like am i even going toward a family why would i do that why would i pursue marriage why would i pursue another person why would i as a man want to take care of a woman why would I ever want to have kids when I can have fur babies? You know, and, and so it's this, it's this massive uh, devastation of the entire framework um, such that the problems of previous generations aren't any longer the, exactly the same problems today. But yeah, it's... So I think, I mean, again, I, I submit to you these ideas. Um, some of you are thinking, gosh, poor James and poor Genevieve, you know, Genevieve especially. But, and that, that's fine. I mean, I, and I'm not trying to be draconian or overly white and black, but I'm presenting and submitting these ideas to you that you can think about them and um, see, test them in your own minds and see if you don't think there's at least more sanity in the frame I've presented than in the frame the world is presenting you. All right, was there anything else? Nope, great, okay. So then verse 6, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Let's just go back to 4 and 5 and finish this out, okay? So say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, your nearest kin, to keep you from the forbidden. And again, this forbidden is a little flexible, this language. It could be strange or immoral to keep you from the forbidden woman, concretely in terms of the form of the poetry, like this could be um, the married woman, this could be the prostitute, this could be the woman outside of Israel, like a pagan woman with foreign gods. All of that is kind of, all of those possibilities are enclosed within this word forbidden. So to keep you from the forbidden woman. So again, look, it's binary. You cling to wisdom that you may be kept from the forbidden woman. If you go after the forbidden woman, you're going to be scorned by wisdom. And we've seen that. So it's one or the other. You can't have both. Last part of verse 5, from the adulteress. And again, that language also has within it this the stranger immoral. The adulteress with her smooth, with her seductive and entrapping words. Okay, verse 6, for at the window of my house, now again, this is the father speaking to the son, uh, window, they didn't have glass panes, um, they had lattice, you know what that is, like that kind of thing, to keep the birds and other critters out. So, for at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, again, this would be like amongst the foolish, um, yeah, naive, I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner. Whose corner? The forbidden woman, the adulteress. 
So once he he sees this naive guy who's you know just on his way to get an ice cream cone or something, and he does he's like a he's like a fly buzzing around, and he doesn't see the web or the spider. That's kind of the image that's being presented here. Like this this old wise guy is looking through his window and seeing this young dolt, and seeing what lies right ahead of him. So he is, verse 8, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. Now, now, not that he's intentionally going directly there. It may be the case, but not necessarily. In the twilight, in the evening. Okay, in the darkness, can you see where you're going? Nope, neither can this guy. And of course, darkness and twilight being signifiers of evil. So he's going in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute. Okay, that is to say, she is. Um, have you seen women that look like walking fishing lures? That's um, dressed like a prostitute, okay? They're trying to draw and attract eyes. And that, by the way, is, you know, like St. Paul will talk, uh, will speak against braided hair. Do you remember this? Because braided hair was, it's not inherently, you know, I'm not, sorry, I'm not looking for braids here to see who we have to stone. There's nothing inherently evil about braided hair. But braided hair in the first century was a mark of, Someone who, in all likelihood, was rebelling against authority. That's one component. But a secondary component was saying, hey, look at me. So there is a, there is a kind of line to be drawn there. We don't often talk these ways, and it's difficult to, and you're liable to get in trouble, but I mean, when has that ever stopped me? Uh, there, is this, there is this line, yes, sometimes gray, between looking nice and presentable and maybe even attractive in the sense of like, that looks like someone who would be good to have a conversation with or that looks like someone I'd like to get to know better. That attractiveness versus the attractiveness that accentuates certain physical features and draws one into a sort of lustful approach. And now males can do this just as well as females, um, but that is, that is, even though the line may be hard to draw too precisely, that is something for us to be aware of as Christians. It is something for us to be cognizant of. What are we doing with our physical attire? All right, well, in no uncertain terms, this woman is telling this young man, and by the way, the whole world, what it is she wants to do through her attire. She is drawing attention to herself in a way that's going to elicit a lustful reaction. Obviously, as Christians, we want to avoid that. That's what it means for her to be dressed as a prostitute, uh, wily or crafty, of heart, and that's the whole point. This is why is she dressed like a prostitute? She, I, I mean, I use the she's fishing. That's my example. That's why she's wily or crafty. You know, a fisherman doesn't just throw in a bare hook and say, you know, here trout, come come bite the bare hook. 
He makes it alluring and attractive. That's how he's crafty. He might even match the hatch, you know, what's going on in the insect life at the river, and he's going to match his lure directly to that in order to deceive and attract the fish. And that's what this woman is doing with her craftiness, with her wiliness. She's using her physical appearance as a lure to get him to bite. Okay, verse 11, she is loud and wayward. Now, this has its antithesis and parallel in the woman wisdom that we saw all the way back in chapter 1. And by the way, um, we're going to have two more poems. There's three total poems of wisdom where wisdom is the centerpiece. But remember, the um, wisdom personified as a woman is crying out loudly, drawing attention to the content of her speech namely the wisdom of God. Uh, And here in competition is this woman, the adulteress, crying out in a loud and wayward way. Again, her whole demeanor is meant to draw attention not to the wisdom she's going to speak, but to herself uh, for lustful ends. So she's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home That is to say, she's not where she belongs. She's everywhere but where she belongs. Okay, verse 12. Now in the streets, now in the market, and every corner she lies in wait. And again, I think that this kind of, I think that this is Solomon via his poetry. She's virtually ubiquitous. She's virtually everywhere. She's in the street. She's in the market. She's at the corner. She's lying in wait. And I, I think that this is his way of showing us that, look, this isn't, we're not talking merely about level one physical adultery. We're talking also about level two, the allure of the wisdom of the world, which will take you away from the wisdom of God. It's gaudy and it's loud and it's attractive and it's sensual and it's disordered and it's ubiquitous. So you're going to have to fight temptation unless you're going to be like this dunce that the father is looking at through his window, seeing going astray. All right, well, what does she do? She seizes him, which is maybe a little weak. She captures him. She grasps hold of him. This is like the spider has grabbed hold of the fly. And she kisses him. About the way the spider would kiss a fly, right? Draining it dry and devouring it. So she captures him and kisses him. And you can see how these things that would otherwise be good are the very things that have been perverted and made evil. So the embrace, the kiss, have been perverted and used to evil ends. And with bold face, he'ezah, impudent face, um, with shamelessness, no sense of guilt about what she's doing. With bold face, face, she says to him, and you'll understand the point, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. How does she present herself? As a religious woman. 
as a religious woman. Now, if you, um, if you drop down to the study note on 14, this will spell it out concisely. The woman presents herself as religious as having just made a peace offering in connection with a vow. And then you can see Leviticus 7, 12 through 16 for the reference. So that's why, um, what's the lyrics from that Whitney Houston song? I'm every woman, it's all in me. Do you remember how she sings that? Maybe not. I don't know. And it probably doesn't originate with her anyway. Um, But that's the idea here in the image of the seductress. You have not only the pagan, foreign, idolatrous woman, but you also have the Hebrew woman who is making a mockery of Yahweh, offering the sacrifices and checking the religious boxes. Meanwhile, her heart could not be further from him. And so that's a, that's a possibility here that we would see sort of every manifestation of the unfaithful woman in this one poetic woman, this seductress. Okay, at any rate, she presents herself as a religious woman. And what else does the study note say? So right after that line that I read in the study note, there's this little detail, too, that's worth noting. Some of the meat in a peace offering could be eaten by the person making the offering, but it had to be eaten within two days. Um, What a wily or crafty invitation. So in other words, you know, and this is a, we're living in a, living in a time and place where you can't just go to In-N-Out and get a burger. Meat's meat's relatively rare. It's expensive. It's hard to find. Um, It's hard to get, in a sense, at least much harder than now. And so what's she doing? She's, hey, she's forward. let, Let me put it this way. She's forward with her physicality. She embraces him. She kisses him. She says, hey, I just got back from church, and I've got barbecue. All right. So, Every possible enticement to a man, you women might not understand how devious and seductive this truly is, you know. And I've got steak at home. Whoa. Okay, so that's kind of, you know, the study note gives us that that possibility here. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. Verse 15, the seductress is still speaking. So now I have come out to meet you to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now, notice the language. It's love. Is this in fact love? No, it's the absolute perversion of the word love. It's the antithesis of love. She's going to drain him of his life. She's, in effect, through her adultery, she is murdering him. And that's going to become apparent at the end. But she calls it love. And again, I'm not going to wax off on this tangent, but boy, could we ever. Because what do we hear everywhere today? Love is Love, which of course is just the height of stupidity to even state outright. But one way we can see that they're using that word is, you, know, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Thank you. One, one, one child of the 80s got my movie reference. That's great.
Princess Bride, which is a good movie, by the way. So, they're using the word love when in fact, and they're using it as if it's self-evident. Everyone knows what love is, and love is love. This is all self-evident, but what do they mean by love? The antithesis of love. The antithesis of life, but death. So, I think we can glimpse this. I don't want to overdo it, but I think we can glimpse this same manner and mode of speaking. Clothing evil with the language of good. All right, the come let us take our fill and delight ourselves is also sort of feasting language. So there's this, there's this sort of connection, um, the sensual connection uh, between the sexual sin and the eating. And this, by the way, is at the heart of um, foreign religions, this idea that you have feasts and eat from the altars of the demons and engage in sexual immorality, temple prostitution. So those kinds of things are being alluded to as well. And you can think of even Paul in New Testament times having to address the practical conundrum of, well, when I go to the marketplace and buy some meat, how can I know that it wasn't sacrificed to Athena or Zeus or whomever it might be? And is it okay if I eat that? You can recall Paul's admonition to the Corinthians in that regard. Okay, so the food and the sexuality both connected with um, pagan religions. So again, adultery is idolatry. Uh, maybe just a little further, and then I'll, I want to show you something else if we have time. Yeah, we have time. So verse 18, Come, let us take our fill of love to the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. A full moon, uh, at full moon, he will come home. So later on, perhaps even as much as a month away, he'll come home. A lot of money, a bag with a lot of money means, hey, he's going to be gone for a long time. So that's her speech. And you can see the quotation marks there given to you at the end of verse 20, showing that that's the end of her seductive speech. Okay, that would be a good place to break because, but, um, just take a quick field trip, if you will. I've tried to reflect as we've gone along in many ways in which the Old Testament speaks to these same realities. And as we're drawing to a, con- a close on chapter 7 and drawing to a close on this 10th uh, address to a son, um, we see these two women, the seductress, the prostitute, the harlot, the unfaithful woman. Um, in this case, more specifically, she's married. And then the noble, holy, wise woman. Okay, these two women show up in the New Testament. Can anybody think of where? Babylon. Bingo. Revelation. So go quick with me. Um, leave, a, leave a bookmark or a hand or whatever, whatever you have here. And um, let's go to Revelation. And again, we were just given the name of this woman, Babylon. Let's, um, let's go to Revelation 12 first. Let's look at, the, let's look at wisdom. So just as in Proverbs you have two women, in Revelation you have two women. 
Just as in Proverbs they're antithetical to each other, so also in Revelation. So Revelation 12, just to uh, refresh it in your mind. Starting at verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. He swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. By the way, this is Revelation's version of Christmas. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Isn't it interesting that Mary unwittingly places Jesus into a feeding trough of beasts the very moment the dragon intends to devour She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is Psalm 2. We know it's Christ. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We saw that earlier in Revelation, that after his death and resurrection, he is caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And the um, woman, let's just go over to verse 17, since we're trying to do this quick. So skipping over a good number of verses, we read, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are the rest of her offspring? It's us. It's Christians, children of this woman. On those who keep the commandments of God. Sound familiar? And hold to the testimony of Jesus. All right, so that introduces us to one of the two women. Um, Just again, by way of of trying to do this expediently, go to chapter 17, and we'll be introduced to the antithetical woman, sometimes referred to as Babylon or the great prostitute. At chapter 17, verse 1 in Revelation, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And again, she's been introduced before, but this section is quite pertinent. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Sound familiar? And with the wine of whose sexual immorality The dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Excuse me. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, looking like a what? prostitute, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. By the way, if the woman in Revelation 12 held within her hand a cup, what would that cup be filled with? The woman in Revelation is, in Revelation 12, is the church. 
What is the cup of the church? Christ's blood. So note that Christ's blood poured out for forgiveness of sin and for righteousness. Now note the antithesis here. That she has within her hand a golden cup full rather of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. See how the sexual immorality connects with the religious immorality. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Okay? Yeah, gruesome, right? So, and you can see the, and I don't want to go too long here, but you can see the symmetry where the blood of Jesus poured out freely for the saints versus this woman drinking the blood of the saints. You can see the religious connotation and the drinking What you see in Proverbs 7 is the religious connotation. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, but not drinking, rather eating. And the same kind of irony that as she's inviting him to eat of the meat she has sacrificed, what's her intent? So not the cup of abominations, but the meat of abominations, that she might, as he eats that, she might eat and devour him. So not the cup of the blood of the saints, but the flesh of this Son of God she's going to consume and destroy. So you can see the parallels there, can't you? And if it's a little complicated, you can see the parallels. Okay? So I would, I would beyond guess, I would just assert outright that when John is thinking of the woman of Revelation 12 and the woman of Revelation 17... He has somewhere in his mind these two women already presented by Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Okay, maybe that suffices. Any, any thoughts, questions, comments before we flip back? I see one over here. Yeah, there was the mention of barbecue, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, it does strike me the woman of Revelation 12 is Mary, right? That's I would say Mary, but more person, than Mary. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, That's Mary, a particular person. There's no particular person who's the whore of Babylon, though. Right? I mean, that refers to some, something more abstract. Well, so... I mean, it's not like Herodias or something like that. No, it, but it would, at its most specific point, be Antichrist. Antichrist. It would, at its most specific point, be Antichrist. Yeah, the Antichrist figure morphs in those chapters of Revelation and ultimately morphs into the harlot riding on the beast. Yeah, but it's still, it's still, I mean, Antichrist is still something more abstract than Mary, right? Mary's a particular person. And I'm struck by that. Sure. And when we go back to Proverbs, the wife is a particular, the wife of the son is a particular person that he finds at home. But the prostitute is everywhere. It's like you can find sin in the abstract anywhere you look for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of thinking there may be a parallel there too, that, that the, son, the son has one, one wife who's at home. It's his wife, his particular woman. And sin, right, is, is in the abstract just everywhere. 
Yeah, well, I think I agree with your conclusion, maybe more than how you got there. But right, I think right. your yeah, I think your conclusion's right on. I do I do hesitate in pinning Revelation tw- the woman in Revelation twelve too tightly with Mary. I mean, it's clearly Mary when she gives birth to the Christ, but by the time she's given birth to all the offspring, uh, you kind of run into a little bit of a problem unless you're unless you're going to see Mary also as icon of the church and and Revelation twelve being Mary, but more than Mary, namely the church or wisdom. So. But that's how you got there. Your conclusion, I think, is well taken, right? Because, um, I mean, even in the concrete example of a husband and a wife, there's one appropriate expression of that love there with that one woman, with that one man in the marital relation used anywhere else, which it could be used anywhere else, um, is immediately evil. And so there's a kind of narrowness and specificity, a kind of ordering to what is good, Whereas evil is multiform and chaotic, and it can just be anything as long as it's in antithesis, right? So evil can be ubiquitous. It's just kind of another facet of that idea that um, the fragility of good and the preciousness of good, because it's so easily destroyed by that which is evil. Yeah, thank you for that reflection. Anything else? Okay. We've got just a couple more minutes, so let's see if we can't get to the end of 7. Flipping back to Proverbs chapter 7. And again, we've just ended the seductress speech at verse 20. So now we go back to the Father at 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So again, even though she's offering him a feast, she's going to devour him. It's going to end up costing him his life. All right, at 24, we have this Hebrew conjunction um, represented by the English and, so this isn't thought to be by most a a specific piece written to sons plural, which we've seen before, but rather to be a connection with what's previously gone in verse 7. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart, so again, very beautifully, he's painted this sort of naive, simple, guy who ends up being seduced and in way over his head. Now he's turning to his sons and saying, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. I don't want you to be simple as this character I've just portrayed before you. Do not turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. And now we've got this convergence of probably the two main motifs of the first seven chapters of Proverbs, the two women and the two paths. He continues in verse 26, For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Okay, not only um, could we say mighty as in large, but amongst those whom she has slain are the mighty. That's another possibility. 
And so, you know, there, there the warning becomes all the more acute, like don't be haughty, don't be hubristic, um, realize that she has captured and destroyed many. And of course, insofar as Solomon himself fell into idolatry, which the, of which the scriptures tell, he himself was a mighty one to be slain um, by this seductress whose ultimate aim isn't merely physical, but to draw one spiritually away from the wisdom of God. This path upon which she is followed culminates in her house, verse 27. Her house, gone down the path to her house, her house is the way to Sheol. So her, yeah, her doormat at the front door doesn't say welcome home, it says welcome to hell. But you don't notice because she's got barbecue. (laughs) Her house is the way to Sheol. And Sheol used more nebulously as is often the case in Hebrew. You can see this by the parallelism. The latter half of verse 27 going down to the chambers of death. So she is inviting you into her chambers promising you paradise. Remember the language, I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, there's Egyptian sheets, etc., etc. It's all beautiful, it's all wonderful. I mean, the Egyptian linen is kind of telling there too. It's a nice pun, an allusion to the slavery to Egypt. Um, but she's, she's presented her chambers as paradise. And upon entering paradise, you realize it's not paradise, but shale, not heaven, but Hell, not the chambers of a woman, but the chambers rather of death. So that's the, I mean, this is masterful poetry. It's just incredible. Please. Yes, Rudy. Uh, one of the um, radio talk show people, a scholarly Jewish man, Dennis Prager, brought this up to my ears upon my retiring from teaching, and I'm going, whoa, this is riveting. The, um, and of course, with medication, my brain doesn't follow on a track anymore. But the issue of different, there are different um, seductions at different periods of mankind. Rosie the Riveter and the pill is, are the two. He had a third one, but I can't recall it. Think of where, where the young men are. I have these grandsons of mine that are in the special forces. Think of what... What, con- what they have to contend with. It's crazy. And I, when I first heard that these youngsters, my blood, were um, <clears throat> getting married as they're going into the military, I'm going, I finally went, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for those reflections. Uh, Luther has a similar thought in regard to broad scope, broad scale, um, temptations that sort of go through the periods of life. So he says that he's got, he's got commentary on this in a couple of different places, and he might even do it differently or with some nuance. But as just a general representation of what he teaches, he says, so for the young man, lust or sexuality is the chief temptation. For the middle-aged man, it's money. 
He wants to acquire and compete and show his worth by having more than everyone else. And for the old man, it's honor or respect. More than anything else, he thinks his gray hairs and all his experience have earned him that. Uh, So that's Luther's take. Do with it as you will. Um, You can see the irony of that. If If you're ever on social media and you see these, like, um, they'll do interviews or they'll do lists of like octogenarians and the wisdom they have for you. And you open it up and you look and it's the most puerile, foolish, infantile, it's just infantile. It's rid- I mean, it's preposterous. And there's even something to the effect of that in the scriptures, that gray hairs are no proof of wisdom. And that's demonstrated every time these, these lists, you know, it's like, it's like what's, what's the wisdom you've gained after 80 years? And it's like, Follow your heart. <laughs> gosh. Oh, my gosh. Like the worst advice you could possibly ever give anyone. Okay, well, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.